0: Drip your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 5. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your mercy. Father, we understand that your mercy is you withholding punishment that we deserve, withholding consequences that we deserve for things we've done. We also, Father, are thankful for your grace, the good that you extend to us each and every day and throughout each day. We know, Lord, that it is right and proper for us to to be grateful and to thank you really for everything that we have for everything that we're able to do, everything that we're able to enjoy. And Father, we never want to take these things for granted. We are aware, Lord, that all we have, all that we're able to do, we're able to do because of you. And we just want to say thank you. And Father, we have been the recipients of, of your grace in that we all have a copy of your word. We have instant access to your word. We thank you for that. We pray that your word would always be very precious to us. We ask, Lord, that you would prevent us from having a simple emotional attachment to your word, almost a superstitious attachment. We pray, Lord, that we would hunger for the words of Scripture, that we would hunger for the truth of your word. The Father, we would desire to want to understand what you have communicated to us. That we may not only know your commands, but that, Father, we may understand how we are to think and how we are to feel and how we are to uh, make judgments on circumstances that we find ourselves in, how we are to live in wisdom. And Father, we pray that you will grant that to us. So we ask you open up our hearts and minds, not only to understand your word, but, Father, to receive it, to embrace it, to desire to, to have your word change who we are as people, that, Father, we may continue to mature in life. And so we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians, chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ." Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. I'll make a few brief comments about this passage in general. Some of those things will come up again. And what I'm talking about is it is not uncommon for individuals who want to find ways to put down Christianity, mock Christianity, will say things such as, "Well, the Bible promotes slavery," or the Bible is for slavery." And they'll come and they'll quote verses like this and say, "See?" And, and they'll talk about this passage. Obviously, they've taken everything out of context. And they're making this generalization that somehow, uh, that if you are a Christian or if you believe in the Bible, then you are for slavery. It's often used in the context of the kind of slavery that w- took place in our country uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And it is true that there were those who were believers who did use the Bible to try to condone slavery. It's also true that all of your anti-slavery movements were led by those who were believers who were convinced that the scripture taught against it. And so what individuals have done is, which is a, not an uncommon thing, is they have purposely, uh, or they are purposely, taking things out of context, presenting a kind of a straw man argument to make their point, to make an emotional point, that Christianity is bad, you should not believe in it. If you do, somehow you are a bigot. You are, uh, you are against um, uh, all, the idea of everyone is free and equal and that kind of thing. And it's just, that's really utter nonsense. It's almost, in fact it is, it's so ridiculous uh, that it doesn't need to be addressed. But the problem is, is that it often needs to be addressed because individuals listening to that oftentimes don't really think about what's being said, much less do any research on their own to find out if what is being said is true. You would think that in the day we live in that most people in our country would have at least within them this idea that no matter what you read or no matter what you hear about any group, you need to double check to make sure that it's based on truth and is truthful. If it's it's statements that are being made against any political party or statements that are being made against any political candidate, if there are statements being made against any religion, you need to make sure that what's being said is actually factual because there are those who are willing to engage in this kind of activity to purposely misrepresent the truth, to purposely give only some of the facts, to make their point, uh, and, and they don't really care about the truth, they're not looking for an honest intellectual engagement of whatever the issue may happen to be. They want to make some kind of an emotional point, normally. Uh, It kind of goes back to um, the idea that some people learned, uh, I guess you would say back in my day, um, where if you were on a debate team, uh, what you were taught is how to debate uh, another team. Basically, you take a certain side of an issue, you want to debate the facts. Uh, and try to come to a logical conclusion, lead people to the maybe a right way of thinking. And what you learn in all of that is that one of the ways that you can tell that perhaps you have a stronger case or you're winning the debate is when the other party then drops their attempt to give the facts and just attacks you personally. And they say basically, well, you know, it's all of a sudden, it's don't look at the facts. He's a bum, so you can't believe whatever he says. And he's a bum because we know these five things about him. Well, that type of thing, that kind of rhetoric goes on all the time now, and people buy into it. And so what can happen, what does happen, is sometimes believers engage in the same thing, and so we're kind of laying the groundwork for that type of um, discussion, that type of tactic to be used against us. And it has been used against us for a long time. And so we need to recognize that and understand that, again, the Bible um, does not teach... Uh, or it's not pro-slavery, but it does address slavery in the sense that, in what we're looking at, and Paul is writing to uh, believers and talking about how slaves should behave. What we do need to keep in mind is the kind of slavery that was going on during that time. There was various kinds of slavery. So there was the kind of slavery that that was taking place that we usually think of, the kind that was going on in our country where people were basically kidnapped from the country, they were brought over against their will, uh, they were sold and families were separated, and they were treated poorly and all those things. That definitely took place during the time of Paul. But that wasn't the only kind of slavery there was. There were those who became a slave because they couldn't pay their debts. There were those who were enslaved uh, because, you know, the military conquered their country and so they no longer had any rights. There were, there were slaves who owned slaves. There were slaves who were, in a sense, practicing medicine. There were medical doctors and they owned slaves and they had slaves who owned slaves. Uh, there were those then at the end of a term, if they, if they uh, maybe had paid back their debt or whatever the case may happen to be, there were those who chose to remain slaves. It's a very difficult thing for us to imagine anybody would do that, but when you see the term bond servant, uh, that's really what that's talking about—is that kind of individual. But bond servant can be misleading because it still should be the word slave. Well, whatever, you, when you think of slave, you think of an individual who has uh, no personal rights. Now, in some cases, those rights have been given up to serve in that capacities. In other cases, all of the rights as a human being have been taken away. Uh, And and Paul is not addressing the why there, he's just addressing what they are to do as individuals. And so we'll we'll talk about some of that along the way, but we want to make sure that we kind of keep that in mind. And at the same time, what we don't want to do is this. Even though what Paul says here is easily, and it is correct to apply this to a situation where we are, uh, where you know, you want to be obedient to those who are over you, your, your manager, your boss. And that is true. At the same time, I don't think, well I do think this, we want to be careful that we somehow don't eliminate still what he says about slavery for several reasons. Number one, there are Christians who become slaves against their will and they have no recourse. There's nothing they can do. They can't get out of it. What do you do? There are some forms of persecution that may kind of uh, simulate a kind of slavery, and we need to know how to respond as believers. And and sometimes what happens is, when it comes to things that we don't like, we are Americans first and we're Christians second, and that's wrong. We need to be Christians first and Americans second. Now, it's not always easy to figure out what to do. it's definitely not easy in the sense of obeying what God has said. But we don't want to minimize what Paul is saying in the way he is saying it. Uh, because, again, we are at times still too much, I'm an American, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. You don't have a right to treat me this way, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you in whatever, way that, in whatever way that you may mean that. Because you're, you're violating my rights. And so we have to, we have to kind of be very careful. Uh, and so remember, then, that that's, that is part of what it means to live by faith. To live by faith is really simply living in obedience to what God has said. So, you know, the simple things, or, or I would say this, the things that are simple in the sense they're very clear. Children should obey their parents. Uh, then, as you grow older, you should honor your mother and father. Those are, simp- those are simple in that they're very clear as to what they're saying. Uh, a husband is to treat his wife in a particular way. That's simple because it's very clear as to what the right and wrong is in that relationship and how the wife is to treat her husband and how they're to raise their children and then the honesty that we are to have in our relationships with other people uh, in business and what have, that we're to be honest, so we're not to lie and we're not to exploit people. All of those are simple and that we easily understand them, and that's important. But there's also the rest of living by faith. And living by faith, then, also then includes living in obedience to what God says when perhaps your rights are being violated. So when I talk about your rights being violated, remember that if you look at our Constitution in America, what is taught there, which is correct, is that there's not this idea that the government gives people their rights. It's where our government recognizes that we already have rights. and And the idea is that the rights we have as human beings is because we are created in the image of God. And I would agree with that assessment. That's true. So when I talk about our rights, then what I'm talking about is what we believe, regardless of what the government system is, that we believe that we have certain rights that are given to us by God. Those rights at times will be violated depending on where we live. How do we respond to that as believers? And we sometimes, our judgment can be a little crowded, Because, again, we are Americans. It's not a bad thing. We just need to recognize that. And there may be times when it's go grab your gun and do whatever. But there may be other times when that is not the response that we are to have. And so we need to be very careful then that we are representing Christ and we are living in obedience to what Christ said. And that can be hard. That can be very difficult. But Remember, Christ showed us the way. Uh, And what I mean by that is... We sometimes think, well, I understand if I'm being mistreated because I've broken the law, but I haven't done anything. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about. Remember, Jesus hadn't done anything either, and he was treated like garbage. The world, again, is going to hate us. We need to understand that, yes, it is true that there are those, you know, we know this, we see this in other countries, there will be those who will hate us because we're Americans. That's going to happen, and we deserve a lot of that. But we have to be careful that if we are being mistreated because we're Christians, not because we're Americans, but because we're Christians, then we have to respond in a very particular way. There's a certain mindset that we must have as believers. And there's no options here. To not have the proper mindset and the proper response is to be sinful. It is to sin against God. And so we need to make sure we have a good understanding of that. So here, when we look at this passage here, uh, by way of just a little bit of background, masters, those who had slaves, often complained that their slaves were lazy, especially when no one was looking. So Paul is encouraging hard work, but he gives slaves a new hope and a new motive for their labor. So that's kind of the background to this. So Paul is addressing this uh, again. What he's basically getting at is that if you are a Christian and you are a slave, basically your master should never be able to say accurately that you're lazy. He's not commenting on whether slavery is right or wrong. Right now, it just is. And again, if you were to study any of these things uh, in ancient history, you would realize that if all of a sudden there was an uprising and all the slaves were suddenly set free, most would be killed within 72 hours, in this case by the Roman government. They would just wipe them out. So that's not a solution. Again, this is not America set back, during the time of 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 paul and of jesus uh the options that we sometimes assume people have they didn't have and it's very difficult for us to understand that because we've all all of us here have always been free we've all we have been born in a country that was free in so many ways you can't imagine how how much freedom we have unless you ever visit another country and see what they have and the kind of limits they have on their freedom. So it's very hard for us to really grasp this and put our minds around this because we tend to assume that everybody has the exact same recourse that we do and they don't. Not even close. Paul says here, basically like wives, slaves should submit to the head of household as if to Christ. Wow. That's that's what he's saying. And, And we need to grasp that. This is very important. Now, this is true only a few writers in the ancient world ever suggested that slaves were in theory um, uh, their masters spiritual equals and the Bible definitely teaches that okay there was this idea it's always been around that there are certain individuals either because either they were made slaves because they were seen as being not equal to the owners or by mere fact that they had become slaves that was evidence that somehow they were, You know, there was different levels of human beings, basically. And they just didn't make, they they couldn't cut it. But turn, if you would to the book of Job, chapter 31. Job, chapter 31, I'm going to read verses 13 through 15. Here it's made very clear in the Old Testament that whether one is slave or free, they are of the same status. They are equal in the eyes of God. Obviously, their living conditions are different. What they, The way they're being treated, what's going on, all that is different. No one's denying that. But in essence, as far as their humanity, they are equal. Job 31, verse 13. If I have denied justice to my servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? So we'll stop right there because as Job writes that, there's an assumption here that's being made in this sentence or in this question. Number one that these servants, or these slaves, deserve justice. And they should be treated justly. Right? And it was possible for a person to be a slave and to be treated justly. Justice was not just, oh, you must free them. Because that was not always the case. Again, there were those who had debts they could not pay. And the way they were paying it off was they then enslaved, they, they enslaved themselves, so to speak, uh, to their master to work off their debt, whatever that debt may be. And there were times when that debt was huge. But nonetheless, they were not to be denied justice because they were not viewed as being subhuman by the Bible. They were viewed as being equal uh, and requiring and um, deserving of the same justice as the master. And the master was being held accountable here because here God's going to confront him. God's going to hold this individual to account because he says, what am I going to do when God confronts me? Verse 14 Uh, The second half of verse 14. What will I answer when called to account? Then he gives the reason why all this is this way. Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? So what he's basically saying, this is another way of saying that we're all made and born the same way and made in the image of God. And that is how we are to view all people. One of the things that has always set, especially in wartime, that has set our country apart is that when we collected prisoners of war, we actually, not not in every single case, there's always been those who were evil, but primarily we treated prisoners of war actually like human beings. There's stories, there's accounts of Japanese that when the war was over and they came in contact with Uh, You know, when they surrendered, when they came in contact with Japanese who had been held as prisoners of war, they were shocked not only to see them alive, but to see them in good health. Because they've been told their entire lives, especially during the war, all these stories about how badly we treated prisoners of war. And what they couldn't understand was they were looking at individuals who had clearly not been tortured, who had not been exposed to all these horrors that they had been exposed to. And there's stories of several, I don't know how many there are, because I've not read every book there is, but there are several accounts of Japanese who, after the war, when they discovered how we treated prisoners of war, they became believers. And how many of individuals who were prisoners of war became believers? Because they would talk to their captors, asking, why are you treating me so nicely? And thank goodness there was a few individuals there who were believers, who basically declared it's the right thing to do, even though you are my enemy, you are a human being made what? In the image of God. And so that then means you have, there's, there's, you, there's a sense of dignity that you already possess. Because you're, and so there are those who became Christians. Remember, most of them were Buddhists. They, they had no regard for human life in that way. The Japanese, on the other hand, when you read stories of what they did to POWs, it's unbelievable. People think that the Germans were bad. The Germans were bad. The Nazis were horrendous the Japanese were no less that way if you ever if you ever want to read something really horrific uh, I'll tell you if you want you can ask me later I'll give you the name of a book that'll blow your mind Um, it's very gruesome uh, as to the kinds of things they did it it is inhuman Um, it is unimaginable and once you've read it uh, you can never unimagine it again it's so bad and so that's their view of, of life, and P.O.W., so when they came in contact with those, or at least with a country who had at least borrowed a Christian worldview that men are created equal and are made in the image of God and therefore are worthy of respect regardless of who they are or where they're born or what their ethnicity or what have you, even though our country was very inconsistent with that, um, during even during that time, that was still there, that was present, and God used that in its imperfection to lead those to come to want to know about the gospel and believe in Christ and so this has been taught in the Bible from the very beginning that all of us are this way so as far as we know only Paul really goes so far as to suggest that in practice masters also do the same for slaves as slaves should do for them and we'll get to more of that in a few moments Uh, Aristotle complained about a few philosophers who thought that slavery was wrong the philosophers he cited did not state matters as plainly as Paul does Paul confronts the practical issue of how slaves can deal with their situation, and again, not whether slavery should be abolished. Um, Again, that issue was not relevant to the point uh, that he was making here. Even, as I mentioned before, even a violent revolution would have never ended slavery as the Roman Empire knew it. It was something that was going to take, in human history, years for that to be resolved. And I'm sure many of you are aware, maybe all of you are aware, that slavery does continue... Uh, we all know about the sex-trafficking uh, slave trade that makes literally billions and billions of dollars worldwide. It is, it's so blatant, it's, it's very difficult for people to actually believe in some cases that it's happening. But that's not the only kind of slavery that exists. There are still human beings, men and women, being sold uh, as slaves to work in, the, in, in families and in factories the way we imagine slavery to be. That still goes on. I mean, it still takes place. There are individuals, there are groups, uh, various ministries, that what they try to do is they try to raise money to basically purchase the freedom for slaves and take them back to the various countries they come from and and set them free. Uh, I mean, that that, that goes on. You don't hear it on the news uh, because the news doesn't really cover the news. Uh, There's a lot of things they overlook, and that's definitely one of them. But again, the way that Paul deals with the issue here, I believe, leaves no doubt that, uh, if he, that if the question of slavery was put before him, he would have also believed in the abolition of uh, slavery. So uh, that was clearly against the will of God. But in this passage, again, the, the term servant or bond servant, or, which is the word loss, which is the word slaves, these were Christian slaves that he's talking to that are working for the most part, working for pagan masters. So let me just read to you what a couple of uh, commentaries say. Vincent, in, it's called Vincent's Word Studies, and he says this. He says, in this appeal, Paul was addressing a numerous class. In many of the cities of Asia Minor, slaves outnumbered freemen. And again, that was a very common thing, that you could have a city, let's say, of 150,000 people, and of that number, 100,000 would be slaves, maybe more. So again, that was just, that everybody just accepted, that's just the way it was, Um uh, again, no one's saying it's right, but that was the historical context. Expositure says this, "...many questions would inevitably arise with regard to the duties of masters and servants in a, state of, in, a, in a state of society in which slavery prevailed and had the sanction of ancient and undisputed use. Especially would this be the case when Christian slaves, of whom there were many, had a heathen master, and when the Christian master had heathen slaves." He goes on to say here, as elsewhere in the New Testament, slavery is accepted as an existing institution, which is neither formally condemned nor formally approved, because he's not dealing with that here. There is nothing to prompt revolutionary action or to encourage repudiation of the position. Again, remember Onesimus, as you read through your Bible, was a a convert to Christianity. Paul sends him back to his master. And the institution is left to be, in a sense, undermined and removed by the gradual operation of the great Christian principles of the equality of men in the sight of God and a common Christian brotherhood. And again, remember that in the world of Paul, in the early church, there were a few situations where it would not be uncommon that when believers would gather in the sanctuary, you would have both slave owners and slaves, and there were times... That the pastor would be a slave and his owner would be there in the, uh, in the congregation. And in the church, those who were the members were to submit themselves to the elders. And you would have that situation. And there was an expectation that, that would go off without a hitch. That there would be no conflict with that. And so that was not an uncommon thing. So we need to keep that in mind again as we think about these things that are being said. But when you look at the passage again, I want to look at a couple of expressions that Paul uses here because I want to make sure that we don't miss out on how we are to take what he's what is being said here and how we are to digest this and how we are to apply this uh, in our thinking as believers. So in there, when you read beginning in verse 5, where he talks about... Um, that uh, in verse 5, bondservants be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, insincerity of heart. So, the first uh, phrasing there, with fear and trembling, that phrase is the same phrase with regard to Paul himself. In other words, the Corinthians and Philippians, uh, it's enough to show that nothing more is in view here than a solicitous zeal in the discharge of duty. In other words, they, they need to be uh, committed to fulfilling their responsibilities as believers. That's what Paul is getting at. So the fear and trembling is not this idea that there's, you're fearful of being beaten by your master. That's not what he's talking about. The idea is, is that, that you are committed to this, that you have a great sense of zeal. Um, the fear, I believe, would be the fear of the Lord, which, which we'll get to a little later. Uh, but the idea is that, that you, you are committed to doing what is right before the Lord, and he, and he makes that clear. When he talks about doing so in sincerity of heart or in singleness of heart, it simply means to be obedient. Uh, It states that the spirit in which the obedience was to be rendered, is not a formality, it's not pretense, it's not hypocrisy. It is an inward reality. It is to be sincere. They are to commit themselves to obedience with an undivided heart. So that's important now for us as believers. So whatever situation we find ourselves in, again, it's true. This applies to those who are over us in, in, the, in the work field, in whatever way that is. Uh, I think the easy way to remember this is that you and I are to obey those who have authority over us in every single situation uh, except when they ask us to violate the clear teachings of command, uh, uh, commands of scripture. And that's actually pretty rare still. It's not, it's not when you explicitly don't like what they tell you to do. It's not that. It's, 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 when it's when there's a clear violation of what God has commanded us to do, only then do you and I, I believe, have the right to not obey what they say. But I don't know if if, if any of us are really ever faced with that that reality. Um, but nonetheless, we want to keep that in mind. But there is to be this undivided um, obedience. So So we don't have the right to withhold service. Because well, I don't think my boss is treating me right. And so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of put it on cruise control until I get what I believe is coming to me. Now, you can get into to labor negotiations and all that garbage. We're Christians first, period. We put our trust in God, not in our labor union, not in our ability to manipulate our boss, not in our ability to get others to be on our side. We need to labor as if that individual is Christ himself. And then trust Christ for whatever's going to happen. Remember that as we work and fulfill our responsibilities, we do represent Christ. God may give us opportunity to share the gospel with them. And how will the gospel be heard if we're a slacker? And sometimes we think that the way we're treated or are the wage we're being paid is of greater value than that individual hearing the gospel. And that's where we're wrong. That shows us where our heart is. We're no, we're no different, no better than the greedy miser that's out there who loves money and worships money. So we need to put our trust in God. That God would take care of what if, if I'm not getting paid enough, let God take care of that. If I'm not being treated well enough, let God take care of that. Either, I, either you trust God for it all or you don't trust God at all. And and we need to we need to be about his business. Does that then mean that others may not like you? Absolutely. That goes to the territory. We're not there to show anybody up. We're not there to draw attention to ourselves. This is not where you work really hard and really well and then try to find a way to, you know, uh, backdoor brag about it. That's not what this is. You just do what you're supposed to be doing because we're living in obedience to what Christ has said. As to the word heart, okay? Um, well, let me, let, me, let me do this first. First of all, he says, just to make sure you understand that we're not doing this with, that we are doing this with an undivided heart as far as, uh, the idea of, of obeying those in authority over us. Again, we're not doing it as men-pleasers. We're not doing it for eye service. In other words, we're not simply doing it when the master or when those in authority are watching. Uh, we're not living in obedience to, to either save appearance or maybe to gain favor. Uh, you know, and we're not doing it when the master or when the authority is absent. We don't do that. Okay? Christians don't engage in that kind of activity ever. As to the word heart, expositor says this. Again, so again, we are supposed to, uh, in this position, we are to uh, be obedient to those who are in authority over you, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart. And Expositor says about the word heart, it belongs to the character of the bondservant or the slave of Christ to do the will of God, the God and Father of Christ, in his condition in life. And to do that not grudgingly or formally, but with hearty readiness. So what Paul is doing is he's really examining the character of the believers that he's writing to. We are to take this and examine the character, our character as individuals. How am I doing at work? How am I really doing at work? Not that what does my evaluation say, though that might be helpful. When I examine what I'm doing... Am I truly fulfilling all of my responsibilities as if Christ himself was my supervisor? Now, I know that's a pretty high standard. It's a pretty high order. A lot of times it's not going to be quite there on that mark. But I'm not saying that we somehow say, oh, well, no one can ever do that, and then we go back to being lazy again. But again, the idea is that is the standard that we are, we are striving to achieve. We, we want to do the best job we have. If you're getting another job, there's nothing wrong with that. Get another job. But while you're at the job you have now, you do everything the right way for Christ's sake. Not just for your sake, not just so you can have a nice exit interview or evaluation or have you when you leave. That's great if you have that, but but you may not get that. It doesn't matter. We trust Christ. Trust Christ with your job. Trust Christ with your paycheck, as well as trusting Christ for your salvation. We are to trust Christ, exhibit faith in the way that we live. So if someone comes up to you and says, I just, I just don't see how you can put up with so-and-so, don't say, well, all I know is I've learned from the past that if you want to get a raise, don't do that. Because what you're basically saying is, well, I love money. And because I love money, I want to do this. And because I love money, I want to do that. And because that's what you're saying. And so they're never going to hear the gospel from you. Or, or, or what they might end up hearing from you is what we all repudiate, which is a health and wealth gospel. What they're going to assume is that you believe the gospel and that you're going to church so that you can have enough strength to obey those in authority over you so that you can get more money. What, what is that? That's just another way of the health and wealth thing going on. That, that part doesn't matter. In fact, maybe, uh, and I'm convinced of this. I mean, I, if you read the Bible, remember again, Philippians, God has placed us in the middle of what? A crooked and perverse generation so we would shine his lights. There is no guarantee that you will be treated well at your job. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that if you do your job correctly for Christ, that in time eventually they will treat you right. That may happen on many occasions, but this idea that eventually it will be, you will be treated right, that's not a promise in the Bible. It's not there. You may work worked there for the rest of your life and it will be treated right. But we're not doing it for that, right? We're doing it for Christ. That's what we—that's what we should mean when we say we're doing it for conscious sakes. I, I, it's for my my conscience has to answer Christ. So this is important. So then again, in verse seven, he says. Um, that we that we again we're doing this in verse 6 as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. So again the motive for service to human masters or to those that are in authority over us again should be as to the Lord Jesus. In other words the slave should serve his human master as if he were serving Christ himself. The encouragement for doing this is found in the fact that whatever good the slave does for his master, um, if done as to Christ, shall be rewarded. doesn't mean to be rewarded in this life, but Christ is aware and rewards all of us for the things that we do. We, We all talk about the rewards that we're going to receive one day in heaven. And this is part of that group. But here's what we want to make sure we don't miss. Number one, I think what Paul is making clear here is this. Whatever situation you are in, whether it's slave or you're working, or what have you, you really are serving Christ. That's the first thing we have to get through. We really are serving Christ. One of my first jobs I was a janitor. You stick your hand down a lot of toilets when you're a janitor. I was given keys to many different offices in Honolulu. People are not always real clean when it comes to other people's bathrooms, especially the ones at work. It's just not a nice situation. And you can get disgusted with people, though you've never met them. You're like, man, these people are pigs, or worse. But what you have to remind yourself when you want to skip and you want to cut edges is you really are serving Christ. It's, it's So it's stronger than just Christ is watching. You are doing it for the service of Christ. There were times that I would clean a few offices, close up, go clean a couple other offices, close up, go see, clean up a couple offices, and then because the guilt was so great, go back to the very first ones, because I knew I cut the corner, because basically, if I am serving Christ, what I did, it's not going to cut it. I need to go back and fix it. We, we should we, Maybe we need to pray that God would give us a, a sensitive conscience to that, because you know you can, you can harden your heart to that, and you can become cynical as a believer, and pretty soon those things... Uh, no longer bother you as they ought to. So again, we need to realize that this is not just some nice way to motivate us. This is not just some fancy terminology. Uh, this isn't just a normal pep talk. We really are serving Christ, period. The second reason that's given here is the job that you're doing, the good job you're doing, is the will of God. And you remember that. It's the will of God for your life, period. Period. People say, oh, I just want to know God's will for my life. Sit down, I can give it to you right now. You know, we're thinking, oh, you know, is it God's will for me to go here? Is it God's will for me to go here? Well, before we get to God's will for any of that, it's God's will, if you're a janitor, to clean that stinking bathroom the way you're supposed to. That's what God's will is for your life. If you have that paperwork you have to fill out, that's God's will for you to do that well and do that right. If you're in some kind of a service job, it's God's will that you do that right, that you treat people the right way. That's God's will for your life. That's what it is for the Christian. Thirdly, the scriptures do teach that you will be rewarded by the Lord. It may not be in this life. It may not or it may be in this life, but it may not be money, maybe other things. That's all determined by the Lord, but you will be rewarded. It, it it is never going to be overlooked or missed by God. In the same way that a child Uh, wants their parents to know or to notice they're doing this or that good or doing this or that well. God's not going to miss that. He's going to know that. There's going to be a reward. We're not only doing it for rewards, but it's it's part of the teaching. And we need to recognize that. And then in verse 9, what does he say? Masters do the same. What does that mean? Well, briefly... When masters treated their slaves correctly, they were really serving Christ. When it, if you are in charge of those, you need to treat them well. That doesn't mean you can't get on them when they're not doing a good job. Absolutely, you can get on them. That's the way you do that. You, know, you don't have to walk in there and start calling them names and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and deride ride this, you don't have to do that, but you can be firm. You may have, you know, if it gets to a point where this is the third or the fourth warning, you may have to tell them. That you know, I, I don't want to write you up, but if I write you up, you know that only one more time you're gonna lose your job. I don't want you to lose your job. I don't want you to do better. You may have to say those things, but you can you can say those things without being demeaning or or being arrogant or what have you. Because again, we are serving Christ in how we treat that individual. Treating them fairly and treating them rightly is the will of God. You Keep it in mind. People who work for us. It is the will of God. Again, that doesn't mean that if someone deserves to be fired, you cannot fire them. It doesn't mean that. All it does mean is, is, did you treat them fairly and did you treat them rightly? Did you really give them an opportunity to correct whatever they were doing wrong? Or did you communicate it clearly to them? Did you do that? And maybe take some other things into consideration. Maybe that individual has some other issues that we need to understand. Um, uh, You know, they may have a learning disability. They may not have an IQ that's very high. I think that's important. I don't think that it means that we somehow allow them to get away with things, but it might mean that that we would need to exercise an immeasurably greater amount of patience with the individual because that's what Christ would have us do. That's the will of God for us. Thirdly, you will be rewarded by the Lord. You will be rewarded by the Lord for your obedience in treating those beneath you correctly. So again, the Christian faith does not bring about harmony by erasing social or cultural distinctions. Servants are still servants when they trust Christ, and masters are still masters. Rather, the Christian faith brings harmony by working in the heart. Christ gives us a new motivation, not necessarily a new organization. That's not original by me. I wish it was. It almost rhymes, but it's not me. Both servant and master are serving the Lord and should be seeking to please God. In this way, they are able to work together to the glory of God. What are the responsibilities, again, of a Christian master or employer to his workers? Well, if you're the boss, four things to keep in mind. Number one, we must seek their welfare. Again, it is not overlooking shoddy work, but we must seek their welfare. That means we must care about those individuals. I think that what that normally means is if we're going to make a mistake with them and, and not fire them, uh, maybe when, when, we, when maybe in other jobs would be fired at is we want to make a mistake on the side of being patient, but there's a time when that time comes. I, I can't give you a hard, fast rule for what that looks like because there's a lot of different context out there. But even when you fire them doesn't mean you have to hate them. You may fire them and turn around and try to help them find a good job. Say, look, you know, I, you just, I don't think you can do this job. You clearly can't do this job. There's some things you need to work on. I want to help you get work. But certain things have to be addressed. You've still not addressed them. And, you know, I, this, this, I have no choice. I now must do this for the sake of others that are working and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But We, we, need, to, we need to care about that individual. Now, they may not want you to care for them, and there's nothing you can do about that. We need to make sure that we care about their welfare, that we seek their welfare. We need to make sure we're not threatening them. So again, don't just start using you're going to fire them to threaten them. If, if, you're going to, if you're going to say that they're close to being fired, make sure that that's the actual case. That they've done things that are worthy of that so they can understand this. You're not making empty threats to them. You're not trying to manipulate them in that way. Again, we need to make sure that we ourselves, if you are, are, are an authority over individuals, you need to make sure that you yourself are submitted to Christ. If you are not submitted to Christ, how are you going to have the kind of character that's required by God to live this way? So our growth in Christ is important. It's an, it's, an, it's an imperative here. If that's not happening, we're going to fail miserably. Remember, God has placed you as well where you are in the life of these individuals. And so we need to do what we can to help them. And we need God's wisdom. And if you're not submitted to Christ, you're not going to have his wisdom and then fourthly, don't play favorites. Don't ever do that. Don't treat someone better than others because you like them or because maybe they go to the same church you go to or because they're a Christian or don't treat them worse because they are because they are a Christian. Just don't play favorites. And that can be very difficult to do. That can be very difficult. So you have to be firm in your resolve as to how you treat people so that you can then defend. If, if someone accuses you, you say, well, you haven't fired so-and-so, you need to be able to give some firm reasons as to why you haven't. Now, that person may not like them. That's another issue. But you need to make sure that it's not because you're playing favorites. We want to make sure that we are fair and honest in, our, in these kinds of relationships uh, with others. And I think the best way to do that is to make sure you're submitted to God and, and, and live in obedience to what God says and ask God to give you wisdom and ask God to help you to evaluate yourself to ensure that you are living out the right way. Because we want to make sure that none of these things that we do diminishes the glory of God And then on a personal level to make sure that there's nothing that we do that's going to diminish the gospel of Christ if we are given the opportunity to share Christ with them. And it may be in some cases that the reason why the Lord has not given you an opportunity to to share the gospel with those you work with is because you've already diminished the gospel. You've already weakened the foundation. They already will have no respect for the gospel because it's coming from your mouth. And so we must ask God to forgive us. Perhaps ask them to forgive us what we've done. Ask God to help us to repair that relationship. So then the day will come when we can talk about the gospel and maybe even use the time we had to ask their forgiveness as the starting point. So you remember the day that I asked you to forgive me? I had kind of lost my way for a little while there. And as a believer, I realized that I was doing wrong by the Lord. And I take the gospel very seriously. And that's why I asked God to forgive me, and that's why I asked you to forgive me. What a great starting point. that reviews humility with strength. You know, we're not we're not, you know, we might be a little embarrassed by that, but we and it might be a little bit of shame in that, but there's no weakness in that. And it may give a great deal of validity validity and credibility to what we say. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would that we ask that you would help us to to take this passage here and to uh, to think often about it. I ask Lord you would help us to uh, be individuals who are much less concerned about their rights than we are bringing glory to Christ. I pray Lord you help us to truly understand what it means to live by faith. That it, that it might mean a lot of things that we are unaccustomed to giving into. It may mean that, that we'll be taken advantage of by others. It may mean that others will talk poorly of us and We will no longer speak poorly of them. It may mean, Lord, that there will be certain others who will no longer confide in us because we're not being viewed as being on their side, because we're not standing around the water cooler, so to speak, complaining with them. Help us, Father, never to be arrogant in doing the things that we ought to do. We pray you help us to live by our conviction, the convictions that are laid out for us here in Scripture, that we love you, we want to be obedient to you, that we want to treat others rightly, whether they are above us or below us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to repair any damaged relationships that we may have with others. That, Father, that the gospel of Christ would not be negatively affected. That we would not be negatively affected in the sense that, Lord, perhaps we will become maybe useful once again for your kingdom and being able to share the gospel of Christ with others because they will now begin to recognize that we actually mean it, that we really do believe Father, there's, there's a lot of issues with all of these things. We need your help to examine our hearts. and We pray you help us to do that. And then we pray, Lord, you would help us to make things right. Give us the desire and the strength to do that. Father, for each one here this evening who strives to do that, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them greatly. I pray, Lord, if there are any relationships that they have to uh, bandage up, I pray that you would give them... Uh, great victory in that. I pray that you give them great success in that. I pray, Lord, that whatever respect they may have lost to others because of poor treatment, that, Lord, that respect will be will be regained very quickly. I pray, Lord, that you would then give them opportunities to show the gospel. And I pray that you would prevent the evil one from discouraging them and they'll find success, that, that they, Father, may find their role in this world. And understand why you have placed them where you've placed them. Father, thank you so much for not giving up on us. Thank you, Father, for not condemning us because of our sins. We thank you, Lord, for forgiving us. We thank you, Father, for cleansing us. We ask that you would restore us, Father, to usefulness for your glory. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.